in our age of satellites, cell phones, and cyberspace, there are still a few hidden places left on Earth. One of them is Irian Jaya. A land born of fire, crowned by ice, where pathless jungles swelter in equatorial heat, where freezing mists envelop soaring mountains, and men still live untouched by time. Some 75 miles from its jungle shores, a wall of mountains soars to 16,000 feet, the highest peaks between the Andes and the Himalayas. Atop them gleams a natural wonder, magnificent glaciers spawned by the Ice Age some 15,000 years ago, only five degrees south of the equator. Just below these glaciers lies a wonder of man. Two gigantic mines called Grasberg and Erzberg, less than two miles apart and nearly 14,000 feet high. Welcome to Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. First of all, thanks a lot for joining us on Exploration Radio, Samantha. I have to say that I've been really looking forward to this interview because you are, um, I think, probably the first guest we've had that has had nothing to do with our industry at all, and you're a complete outsider coming in. And I think it'll be great to have this discussion with you today about uh, what your perception is on a on a topic that we think plays quite an important role in our industry. Okay, sounds good. So just to start off, can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Okay, well, um, my name is Samantha Copeland, and I'm a doctor in philosophy. Uh, so I'm a total outsider. I've been looking at the um, what we call the epistemology of serendipity. So I'm interested in how we gain knowledge from unexpected observations and discoveries, like how it comes to go move the movement from chance or luck, what's deemed as luck, to knowledge and new wisdom. And uh, so for me, that's that's a very interesting question, and it's a it's a hard problem um, because often it gets shifted over into psychology or into creativity theory and i'm trying to put a very kind of um for i won't say formal approach because there's formal philosophy and i I don't do that i do social epistemology so i'm very much in the i like the messy stuff um and uh a lot of philosophers like to clean things up so so i guess that's the summary of what i'm interested in in my background so i'm currently in norway as a postdoc and i'll be moving to the university of technology in Delft um, this summer do you mind commenting about what your role in the netherlands is going to be because i think that's quite interesting as well uh well i'll be an instructor of philosophy um, but we'll be teaching ethics and philosophy of technology to engineering students and and you're going to do a little bit of work in kind of the innovation space as well is that part of uh what fits in your role as well well the university itself has a really strong uh research program in responsible innovation and uh design for values um or values based design and uh so so that's really of interest to me and i've been hired to work with them on uh the newly developing um engineering resilience program 
and I'll be looking at the ethics of resilience. And so the project that I kind of proposed and that I'll be working towards is um, taking work that's been done in serendipity theory and how we make unexpected discoveries and kind of how we recognize potential value and looking also at what we've done in resilience theory and in resilience planning um, because that directly deals with how do we go about planning for the inherently unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that there is, there's got to be some way to prepare for things that we don't know are going to happen. Yep. And, uh, and it's a tricky, messy problem. And so that's what I'll be looking at. So before we get too deep into this, do you want to give us a, a simple description about serendipity and what it encompasses? Okay. Uh, it's, it's tricky to do that because there are so many definitions floating out there and uh, so many kinds of descriptions. Uh, so if you go back to the origin of the word, uh, it was invented by Horace Walpole. And um, he said it's uh, discoveries made by accidents and sagacity to generalize. Um, but even he said, you know, uh, he told, he was writing a letter to Horace Mann at the time and he's like, uh, basically, you'll understand it better by the context rather than by a definition, by the description rather than the definition. And so then he told a fairy tale. He told about these three princes of serendip, which is where he got the word. And serendip, of course, is, the, is an old word for Sri Lanka. So these are princes that come from that part of the world, and they were on adventures, and they would make these discoveries by accident and sagacity. And then he told a little version of one of their incidents along the road in the fairy tale. And so he didn't even really give a specific definition. I mean, I think uh, the, the thing that you've just said, which I really like, is that a serendipity can be better explained through analogies than can ever really be explained as a definition. It is, yeah. And people have even broken down the examples that he gave in that letter of different ways that these kinds of discoveries can be made. And there's at least two different kinds. Do you care to comment what those two types are? Uh, well, it's uh, oh, Cora Chumatsiero, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, uh, did a really good breakdown of it. So she called the other kinds sorts walpulitanae, or uh, walpulian luck. Uh, in that case, uh, it's more like um, having the knack for finding the thing you're looking for just at the right time, mm -hmm. which is really different than finding things by accidents and sagacity, right? So sagacity is just a word for a particular kind of uh, perceptive wisdom. Mm -hmm. So in some definitions, they relate it to being able to smell things really well. Like it's using your perception in a way that allows you to, to perceive more deeply into things than some other people would. So like a detective follows his nose. That's kind of the, yeah. That's right. That, that's the analogy there. Yeah, sagacity is like a poor, like a poor description. Oh no, maybe it's more an evolved description of being aware. Essentially, as long as you're aware about things, then that's that's the concept of being sagacious. Exactly, and and being aware in a way that it allows you to pick out potential value. That's kind of how I've been theorizing it. So I actually think that this is not, um, it's often depicted as kind of an innate trait that people have. Some people are just born better than this than others. Um, and, or some people can cultivate it. You know, usually uh, they talk about through experience, right? Like as you, as you work in your field, you get better at picking out what's going to be valuable and what's not and being able to like follow your nose and uh, towards 
things that are valuable and and I've been trying to formulate it as like as an epistemic skill like a skill for learning how to build better knowledge mm-hmm. so I think that we can actually boil it down a little better than people have done but that's that's what sagacity is all about it's about this uh, this kind of murky, undescribable way of recognizing things that might be useful. And uh, if you go back to the tale of the Princes of Serendip, they, the, the part of the story that Walpole uses is uh, the camel driver incident, where the princes are walking along the road and they happen to notice some things along the road. And then later they run into a camel driver who's lost his camel. And they say, oh, well, was the camel limping? And he says, well, yeah. And they say, and was it carrying a woman? And yes. And was she pregnant? Yes. And was there honey on one side and grain on the other? Yes. And he, they're like, yeah, no, we didn't see your camel. And he's like, you've obviously stolen my camel. And so they end up in jail because they've stolen this camel. But the camel is later found. And then um, the prince, uh, the king of Persia wants to know, how did you know all of these details about the camel? And then they start telling details about observations they made along the road. Like there were flies on one side of the road and bees on the other side of the road. So that's how they knew that there was honey and, and I think a kind of grain on the other side. And they noticed some markings in the dirt where a woman had obviously crouched to pee. And, uh, but she was pregnant because she had to put her hands down to get herself back up. And the camel was lame in one leg because of the way that the foot dragged along the sand on the side of the road. And for me, I mean, any, lots of people would walk down that road and look at those things and never actually notice them. And there's a good quotation from Churchill who's, who says, uh, you know, basically that a lot of people, you know, have to trip over the truth to notice it. You know, like they have to, they have to literally fall over it to notice it. They could walk right by it every day and never see it. And this comes up in the, the Fleming story about penicillin as well, where it's not that this was never observed before, it's just people hadn't noticed what was important about it. That's right. Yeah, the, the whole um, story of Barry Marshall having discovered that ulcers are caused by bacteria. Um, Warren, Robin Warren was the one who looked at the bacteria and noticed it. And there are reports where other people, other bacteriologists have seen bacteria in the stomach beforehand, but had gone, nah, that's not and had dismissed it out of hand. So you get a lot of these stories where people in the past have not taken up these observations as valuable, but somebody did. Somebody had that extra bit of wisdom to not only make the observation, but also remember it and then use when it was useful later. And so there's, you know, there's a kind of wisdom there. And I think this goes back to a point that you've made in your research, which I think is quite an important one, that serendipity requires not just the event, but the recognition of the value of that event as well. Mm -hmm. And in reality, I I guess maybe as a wider society, we don't put that much value on the recognition of that value that you see rather than the event. We always think it's just the event. That's true. Yeah, there's especially in common use of the terms of like accidental discovery or serendipitous discovery, the chance aspect is really emphasized. I mean, that's, that's kind of an old school view of science, right? Where uh, science is just us making observations and the world imposing itself upon us, right? That's right, yep. Now Bacon, Bacon thought science was gonna go. Once we could just systematically observe the world, the world would tell us everything we needed to know about it. It was just a matter of perfecting the techniques of observation, right? 
And this way of looking at chance discovery is kind of like that. It's, a, it's what we would call in philosophy a very realist kind of view of science where the world is out there and all we have to do is, uh, is open our eyes and, and we'll see it, have the right tool and we'll see it. And I think you can extend that point a little bit wider as well that we don't have realistically the, the evidence to show how many people actually looked at it and didn't realize along the way. So we're, so we're looking at a very small subset of the whole population and we don't actually know what the population is. It's a big problem for serendipity research because we don't have a lot of counterexamples. They just don't get written down. And even the ones that do get written down tend to be written down after they're discovered. So once it's, you know, when, when it turns positive, but all of that uh, serendipity lost is lost. Correct. <laughs> yeah, that's how. It's about the discovery they didn't make. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. No one goes out there saying that, you know, I missed this observation. Like no one actually comments about that. We obviously just look at the positive affirmation and then make assumptions based on that. Or even the, I noticed this thing, thought it was valuable, but it turned out not to be. Correct. And that happens all the time too. I mean, there's lots of things that we think are going to be really useful. And some people even spend years researching them. And then we don't get those stories very often. I mean, we might get some of them, but we don't get too many. Yeah, that's all yeah. right. <laughs> um, so you mentioned in your research that there's this uh, a paradox associated with serendipity as well, which I want to talk a little bit about. Um, can you explain what that uh, paradox is when we talk about serendipity? Right. So that's McBurney and she's done, she's done a lot of great work with her uh, PhD thesis on this, but she calls it the paradox of control. And uh, it's that you, you feel like, or you seem to have some control over the perception aspect of serendipity, right? So um, one thing she points out is that in her research identifies some examples of people having picked up on something being potentially valuable, but not following up on it. And then she says, there's filters that come into play. Uh, you don't have the time, you don't have the focus, you don't have the resources to look further into that. So you put it aside and, and you don't end up, but you, you still kind of feel like maybe that could have been something. Mm -hmm. um, so you still had that feeling, you had that perception of potential value, but then external control comes in and, and influences whether you can follow it up. Um, and so you feel like you can be more open or more perceptive or more um, able to recognize, like somehow you can develop skills that allow you to perceive these things, these unexpected things better or more often, but you don't actually ever have control over whether it becomes a discovery. Some people call it the ability to cultivate serendipity. Mm -hmm. um, Herod Kantorovich has talked about this, cultivating serendipity, where you can't, because it's inherently unexpected, you actually cannot determine whether a process is going to be serendipitous or whether you'll ever make a serendipitous discovery. But you can cultivate the conditions for making serendipitous discovery and hopefully enhance that possibility. This is where resilience is a really interesting parallel problem because the same thing happens, right? You, you cannot predict what's going to happen, but you feel like you can cultivate the possibility of responding well yeah. <laughs> or recovering from the unexpected in, uh, by doing certain things, right? And so, uh, so that's, that's a bit of a paradox of control as well, right? Where you, so in one way you can control over the perception of, of the unexpected is potentially valuable. And another way you can cultivate the conditions 
for serendipitous discoveries or for resilience, but in another way, in the third way, like you absolutely cannot control it because if you could, it would be neither serendipity nor resilience, exactly. right? Yeah, <laughs> then, no. it, then it would be an experiment with a hypothesis. Yeah, that's right. So this goes um, very similar down the same line of thinking that people like um, Nassim Taleb with their black swan uh, events they have as well. Yeah. So you, you can't predict those, uh, the events. You can't necessarily predict the effect they're going to have, but you you can maybe get better at recognizing the fact that the environment is becoming better and better for a for an event. But but realistically, yeah. you don't have any control over that process at all. Yeah, um, for him, it's recognizing the signs of a of a an approaching event, and also uh, acting in ways that allow you to uh, to respond or recover well to those events. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, he's he's an interesting case because he talks about cognitive bias Correct. as as being the primary problems, right? And uh, one of the key points that I, I like to take from his work is the fact that um, hindsight is so important mm -hmm. in these situations. Um, people think that once we can explain something, then we can predict the next thing happening and have this nice cause and effect view of the world, right? Once we've explained how the causes generated the effects, then when we see the causes, we can predict the effects, right? But um, he says that cognitive bias prevents us from doing that. And other, people have different theories. So the project I'm working on right now has uh, at its base a dispositional theory of causation. And one of the key points in that approach to causation is that even if you recognize the cause and the effect relation, you can't say that the effect will come from the cause because either there's way too many factors involved or sometimes the cause just doesn't generate the effect. Like something blocks it or something else in, is influencing the situation. And so you, explanation does not equal prediction is the lesson matter. That even though we can explain how something happened, it doesn't mean we can predict it will happen. So we trick ourselves in believing that once we can explain something, then, then okay, so now we understand it. Now we can recognize it happening again. And so we're ready. But, but there's lots of reasons to believe that's not true. So let's go on another tangent here with things like people like Daniel Kahneman, and they also deal in this world of cognitive biases where they talk about that it's only in hindsight that we are very good at constructing the relationship. But in reality, as the events are unfolding, you really have no idea how they're going to be connected and what effect they're going to have and what causes what, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I like to add one layer of uncertainty on that when, when I'm thinking about these things. And that's the, uh, the kind of historical bias, right? Yep. We, what we do is rationally reconstruct things. So you can have an unexpected discovery, but the scientific article that's published afterwards doesn't tell you you know, well, I tripped over my lab books on the floor and, and that's how I found this, right? Um, they'll give you the cause and effect relationships yep. that they've later figured out are the truth, right? So you get this, uh, this way that we have of reconstructing events in the past according to our current understanding. In one way, we see them as logically progressing through cause and effect. And in another way, when we pick out, say, the, the history of a discovery process, even like a scientific discovery, mm -hmm. and that story changes over time. The way that people tell the story of a discovery changes. And it can even slip in and out of being serendipitous, 
right? That's um, right. Yep. It kind of depends what point in the process you want to hi highlight. If you decide to pick out that moment of tripping over the lab books or the later work that they did in the experimental setting, or if you want to go even further back and, you know, some people even go further back and say, well, if his mother hadn't been at that school at that time to meet, you know, like you can really, it depends on your, your focus on reconstructing the story as to how big a role you think chance played. Yep. And also, what were the important factors that you pick out? So all our explaining really doesn't amount <laughs> to prediction. No, that's right. And I think there's like this um, great story that Kahneman talks about where he looks at the, the story of uh, Google, the two founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They had an offer to sell their company for $800,000 very early in the piece. Uh, but they didn't do it. And now in hindsight, we look at it and go, well, these guys were geniuses because they knew they had a, a several hundred billion dollar company on their hands. Yeah. But in reality, they came pretty close to taking that offer, but they didn't do it, not because of any extreme foresight that they knew that Google was going to be a $300 billion company. There were many other reasons why they didn't do it. And But now when we look back at it, we do give them some level of uh, credit when maybe that credit wasn't due. The decision they made wasn't because of great foresight. It was just because they they just happened to make a decision and it worked out well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the resources that I like to use is uh, the an article by Fine and Deegan, um, Gary Fine and James Deegan, and they're ethnologists um, looking at stories of uh, ethnologists in the field and how serendipity came about. And they give uh, three different kinds of serendipity. And the one that we're most used to is categorized by them as analytic serendipity. This idea that two unconnected or seemingly unconnected ideas come together and you go, oh, okay, those things are related in a way that I would not have thought before. Nobody's ever thought before. And now we have this mm -hmm. unexpected observation that makes sense in this totally different context. But they also point out that timeliness is really important, like being in the right place at the right time. Um, making an observation at the right time in science for it to be accepted by others, right? Where the right kinds of theory or the right kinds of experiments have been done for people to go, oh, well, we can make sense of this thing. Otherwise, some observations are made in a context where they're just never going to make any sense to anybody. Mm -hmm. And also social serendipity. Um, which is the encountering people that propel you along one path or another, right? That has a strong effect on science, like the way in which people interact. Um, and that, that's kind of the basis for this water cooler approach mm -hmm. that you see, or the uh, Pagan Kennedy points out um, in an interview she just did recently with NPR, uh, the, the money people are spending on stairwells to create the perfect stairwell so that uh, people in a building will encounter each other unexpectedly. And uh, I think it's Apple's recent building. They constructed the building in a way that, you know, people will kind of encounter each other in different rooms unexpectedly. And the Francis Crick Institute in London is a huge building with a lot of money behind it. And it was built in order to force people from different departments to interact so that those unexpected encounters could happen. And so there's this sense that, you know, you're gonna run into somebody at the water cooler in your office who's gonna have the idea that you need. And uh, so that social serendipity is really being emphasized a lot in um, 
and kind of popular take up and uh, and recent like architecture approaches to to encouraging serendipity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's really enough, right? I actually kind of argue against the because it's it's not just about having the two people encounter each other and that and those because that's really just another version of analytic serendipity where you want those two ideas that those people have to bang up it, right? Yeah, it's it's much more subtle than that. It's the way that people push each other in new directions. So just as an aside question, I mean, a lot of your research kind of points to the fact that there is this um, collision of somewhat random events that can lead to uh, an outcome. Mm-hmm. So if that's right, then how does your research um, affect you personally anyways in the fact that like the concept of free will or how much can you engineer uh, something as you go along as well? Right. I don't know if it's affected me so much as come out of my own experience in life. Okay. So um, for a long time, I've noticed that my best decisions have always been unplanned (laughs) (laughs) or seemingly random if you look at them from a certain perspective. Um, So like my approach, for example, to backpacking around Europe when I was in my undergrad was to like meet someone in a hostel, find out where they'd been and then go there <laughs> and do that or take a map and, yep. and pick a destination and then kind of randomly wander through the streets until I got somewhere near there and see all the things on the way. A part of that comes from the fact that I have a bad sense of direction and I'm just coping <laughs> with that. So there's no point in trying to get somewhere in a quick manner. I might as well just wander until I get there. Yeah, and enjoy the ride as you go along. Yeah, yeah. but also it's that, you know, a lot of the good experiences I've had in life have been from picking up a pamphlet while at a place, you know, or reading something on a bulletin board or talking to someone who had a different experience Mm -hmm. than me. And... uh, these aren't, you know, Google search results, right? It's not like it's me typing in a, a specific parameter and then getting the result that I'm looking for. It's, it's old-fashioned serendipity. Go to a library, find the book you want, and then look at all the books around it, and you know, also yeah. find those. And that's people really lament the loss of that with the increasing use of algorithms and directed advertising and creation culture bubbles, right? This is one of the the reasons why serendipity research is taking off right now, because they're looking for ways to get out of that bubble. And uh, it's harder and harder to just encounter things, you know. Uh, Sanda Ertelez calls it information encountering, just information you come across while you're doing other work, you know? Yeah, that's um... That's just kind of the root of the idea of serendipity. So um, I think that pattern in my own life and me noticing the the positive results of that has had an effect on my interest in this as a philosophical problem because i feel like i'm not i'm not just bumping into things while you know like blindly wandering through the world i'm actually opening my eyes and being aware of things that might be interesting you know like i didn't fall into the museum i came across while wandering through rome i saw the door recognized it as something that might be interesting to me and then went in right but not it was not a planned encounter right so that was one of the questions that i had is in our data-driven analytically driven world 
we have somewhat lost the ability to recognize value outside of the path that we are taking. I always give this example as Google. You need to know what you're searching for before you go searching for it. Whereas the ability to actually search for something like, you know, to, to explore for a concept mm -hmm. without knowing what you're actually looking for. Mm -hmm. I think we're slowly losing that because of the information that's really at our fingertips now. There's lots of work being done on fixing that problem. And, uh, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah, lots of computer programmers are, are finding ways to, to increase opportunities for surprise in search algorithms. Um, there's been uh, really neat um, alternatives to Google that give you like spheres of influence instead of a list. Yeah. Of pages and even google's not so bad you know i don't i don't want to get in trouble for dissing them. <laughs> but also i mean when i don't know exactly what i'm searching for you can throw in some you know related terms and hope something turns out but it doesn't always work and you have to have the time right? and i think time is kind of the key problem here people are really looking for efficient ways to find what they need and there is an effect of those filter bubbles where people start to feel as though the only information out there is the stuff they're getting. And I think that's the really negative aspect of this is that it, what it does is it slowly affects people's perception of, of what is just what's out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I'm working on in serendipity and its epistemology is this idea that the reason we see some things as chance discoveries is because we didn't see the people who produced that knowledge as potential producers of knowledge. Ah, yep. Like people came to the new world and were like, oh, wow, you know, look at what these, you know, natives are doing. This is, you know, this is crazy. They, they don't know what they're doing, but it's real knowledge, you know, and they take it and they call it a chance discovery or the classic example of uh, Watson and Rosalind Franklin's x-ray her crystallography x-ray like the way watson tells yeah. it in his autobiography it's like this he really plays up the fact that they didn't expect to find this that it was really unexpectedly useful blah 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 but if you told the story a different way it would just be him encountering another scientist who of course has information that would be useful to him yeah. but because of his way of perceiving that scientist as an unexpected source of knowledge that's right so a lot of our interpretation of chance is actually just bias about where and who we think we're going to find the knowledge or who's going to give us the knowledge that we need. Uh, so do you think a better way to say, uh, a better way to describe serendipity would be the chance encountering of additional knowledge? Um, I actually think of it as um, a way of, so partly because serendipity is retrospective, um, that we, we don't go into something saying, you know, this is going to be serendipitous, right? It's always, well, that was serendipitous. It's always a past, rec a recognition of a past event and its value. Um, but I think that recognition is not just recognizing the value of the knowledge or the observation itself, but also an expanding of our own expectations mm -hmm. about where knowledge can come from. And that's the real learning that we're doing when we have serendipitous. Um, encounters. It's the, and people who are more often serendipitous have less rigid expectations or they're more prepared to have those expectations broken down. So I think it's unexpected, but that also makes it very much about our perception of things rather than about chance 
being a thing out in the world, right? Does that make sense? Yep. No, no, no. That makes sense. So what's the role of individual versus communities in this process? So obviously the individual needs to be aware, but surely the influence of community helps in that, uh, in that perspective as well. Yeah. This is where those filters that McBurney talks about really come into play. And other people have talked about constraints on serendipity. Laurie McKay-Pete has some good work on this too. Um, but the idea that certain external factors can really influence both our perception of things as potentially valuable, like our awareness that that thing over there in our peripheral might be valuable or not. Um, and also our, and I think really importantly, our ability to follow that up. Mm -hmm. So uh, to go back to the Barry Marshall and the, the ulcer related bacteria story, the reason why Barry gets all the credit in, in the stories that are told, and we forget about Robin Warren, um, who did the original observation is uh, that Barry Marshall really went out there and fought for his view of bacteria as causing ulcer and bacteria surviving in the stomach. And this was gastroenterologists at the time were like, no way, you know, your theory has to be wrong. There's no way a bacteria can survive in the stomach. So they can't possibly cause ulcers. Um, but Paul Thagard, who's a philosopher of science, um, has done a really nice detailed reconstruction of how Barry Marshall did all of this. And when you do, when you tell the full story, there's friends of his in high places who helped him get things published, who got him talks at the right places. And there's this huge social uh, context in which all of this happened. He had a lot of help, yep. right? It wasn't just Barry against the world. It was, you know, Barry with the support of some key figures and with the right kinds of things being done at the right time that allowed him to be against the world and to prevail, right? So, so you can build communities that do a better job of that, of supporting. And then if you add in my comments that I just made about bias and expectations, uh, the more we allow ourselves to believe that only certain people have the genius necessary to make these kinds of discoveries, the more elitist science becomes. And actually the less chance we have of these serendipitous discoveries happening, right? Um, or if they are happening, they're often stolen or take, or you know, the role of other people is squashed. So the more diverse we see science, and the more we see um, what I like to call the, the diffusion of epistemic agency, to give a, a nice philosophical spin on it, but this idea that epistemic agents are not only diverse, but they play different roles and necessarily different roles in adding to a discovery process, the more likely we're going to listen to that lab technician who might be really nervous and says, I think actually this, you know, this thing that's happening is not a mistake. I think it's a discovery. And to look into that further, right? Whereas, you know, hierarchies and elite versions of science tend to squash that, that kind of opportunity. Um, so I, I do think it's, there's definitely different kinds of communities that can promote serendipitous discoveries overall. And I think, uh, like, I mean, that, that, that point is a very, very important one that, you know, like science is largely driven in, in some sciences, it's driven by gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And if you can sell the gatekeeper, then basically that limits whether you're going to have uh, you, your idea or your research is going to have any exposure at all. 
and your point is a really valid one that it then has this knock-on effect on the whole community that the community is not actually uh getting enriched by this level of ideas coming through yeah. oh, that's really and, and i, I mean there's still yeah, a that's... level of individual skill that person still has to have the courage to you know to say that this is a discovery and not an accident and they have to have the skill to show that it's a discovery and not an accident and they have to have the knowledge to recognize it as a discovery or a potential discovery and not just dismiss it as an outlier, right? So these are all individual based skills, but those skills can be supported or, or not supported by the community in which they, they arise, right? That's right. And so I think in the long run, communities that support those skills will also enable more individuals to develop them. And I think for me anyways, there, there is this um, uh, issue in science where if you're a scientist, your value is judged by how well your idea stands the test of time as well. So, so you have a vested interest in maintaining challenges to that idea because your, your reputation can be built upon that. You are Samantha and your expertise is this. But if someone comes in and challenges that, then you, you know, th there is not a good reward system in science to allow that idea to then evolve yeah. i think naturally you know there it's a more of a a conflict kind of relationship rather than a mutual beneficial relationship yeah they've uh some philosophers of science who've like formalized relationships within science have shown that if everyone agrees with a the theory, the theory actually doesn't get developed as well. Oh, wow. So even if the theory is correct, it's actually better for science in the long run for a bunch of people to be wrong <laughs> and to oppose it than for every scientist to be right and agree with it um, because it pushes on that theory and allows it to develop better. So, so again, diversity in science is important. I don't think it's, uh, it's necessarily as black and white as wrong and right right about a theory i think that different perspectives will push on different parts of the theory and make it more robust right yeah. so you have an, an an ability to answer more questions with that theory instead of everyone having to accept all these parameters first no that's right it's a it's a concept of a healthy tension or like you know they call it the 10th person like you know if nine people agree then the role of the 10th person is to oppose the the other the nine's opinion yeah and and then and that is a mechanism for evolution of thought ideas a whole bunch of things this incredible story begins with one man in 1936 27 year old dozy vowed to be the first man to reach irian jaya's tropical glaciers it seemed a reckless boast Europeans had been launching expeditions to Irian Jaya's hinterland for 300 years. None had broken through the deadly labyrinth of jungle between the mountains and the sea. The only way to make your way inland is by river. Now, the problem with the rivers is that you don't know where the rivers are leading. This was a problem with the very first expeditions that came to this area that tried to reach the glaciers that took the wrong river. They spent a year and a half trying to get to the glacier just because they took the wrong river. It seemed unlikely that Dozy would succeed where so many others had failed. But Dozy possessed a recent 20th century invention, which lifted him over the jungle and showed him the way to go. 
Dozy had the advantage of knowing what the terrain looked like from the air. Once you knew the terrain, once you knew which river to take, once you knew what the lay of the land fairly well, you could move a lot faster. On October 29, 1936, Dozy, two friends, and eight porters started up the Iqua River. They paddled to where the mountains began and started walking. We just walked up as far as we could, started cutting, followed a trail, made a trail, and the higher we came, the more tougher it became. After a while, they didn't know where they were anymore because they had aerial photographs up to a point, but then the jungle gets pretty steep and you're not quite sure how far you have to go. Exhausted as he was, the geologist Dozy took time to sketch a peculiar rock formation. You had a blackish, black rock wall, a black mountain with a green and blue large uh, specks on it. Uh, and, well, being a geologist, I of course recognized that there should be some copper into, this, into that rock, but at that moment I had, to, I had to go on. Dozy had no way of knowing how right he was. In fact, he had stumbled upon one of the greatest geological discoveries of all time. Dozy collected a few ore samples from the curious Copper Mountain. On his field maps, he named it Erzberg, Dutch for Mountain of Ore. Back in Holland, he wrote a report describing his discovery. But his timing could not have been worse. Dozy published his report in the summer of 1939. On September 3rd, World War II began. While Holland suffered under Nazi occupation, the Erzberg report gathered dust. 20 years later, a Dutch geologist gave it to Forbes Wilson. Wilson was chief mining engineer for Freeport, an American mining company. Forbes was a man who had to be the best or the biggest or the fastest, or the smartest uh, with anything and everything. And indeed he was in many areas. That's part of the reason I think that we today are mining in uh, the Erzberg complex. Wilson was looking for nickel deposits. But when he read Dozy's description of the Erzberg, he forgot all about nickel. After Forbes Wilson read the Dozy report and it became part of his being, we can almost say that it became a holy grail for him. He was a man, 50 years old at the time, and a heavy smoker. He gave up smoking, got himself in shape, and organized this expedition. He had to find for, and see for himself Erzberg. On May 30th, 1960, Forbes Wilson plunged into the jungle, determined to reach the Erzberg. On June 16th, 1960, after 18 days of hard travel, Del Flint and Forbes Wilson found the Erzberg. A service inspection convinced them that it was indeed a mineralogical marvel. 
thickly laced with enormous chunks of the yellow copper ore known as chalcopyrite. There'd be blobs that uh, up to four feet across, or perhaps even longer, that were solid chalcopyrite. And when you saw that, I, it was just, you boggled your mind. You, ooh. Uh, when I first got there and got up on the thing, I just screamed like Tarzan, yoo-hoo, God, I'm, it's mine, all mine. <laughs> the two American geologists had proved that Erzberg was really a mountain of ore. But Jean-Jacques Dozy had called it a mountain of ore on the moon. Who could build a mine in one of the most inaccessible places on Earth? Let's make it a little bit more uh, uh, specific to geology. So from what you have looked at geology, or from what you know about geology, is it a good candidate for serendipitous outcomes, or as a science then, is it perhaps more catered to serendipitous outcomes? Hmm. I mean, I'm a little more familiar with uh, like kind of historical geology where there's actually a lot of theory involved with you know exactly why these layers of rock form in the way that they do and why certain things will be found. So uh, um, I, I don't know if I would say it's any more likely to be serendipitous than other environments, um, again, because I think serendipity is everywhere all the time. I'm really mm -hmm. isolationist about serendipity. I don't think it's special. I think it's common. I think it, it happens all the time. And uh, but geology might be a little bit better at proudly telling the stories rather than squashing them under a rational reconstruction of a logical sequence of theoretically I events, <laughs> right? Um, because it, it does require this, at least an admission, that you looked and you saw, right? And so when you have that, it's not that you designed and you controlled and you, you know, create, you manufactured an outcome, right? It's this kind of, you, 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 at some point in the process, you can say, I looked and I saw. And so that put the, the scientist as observer, and also the scientist as encounterer with the world, right? And so it's it's an encounter with something. It's not a it's not a manipulation in order to establish something kind of science. It's a it's an encounter with the world kind of science. And and that mm -hmm. that encounter, like I said earlier, is kind of the basis of our our understanding of of chance events and, and serendipitous events, where you know, you, you come face to face with something. Uh, Robert Merton suggests that the, the, the datum imposes itself upon the observer, right? <laughs> it, it comes up and kind of slaps him in the face. And, you have to, and then the, the observer strategically applies that datum to theory, right? So there is a, there's a back and forth between the, the wise person who recognizes the value and can relate it to theory or can change theory in response to it and the world coming up and coming into the face of the, of the scientist. And if you don't have that description of an observation in the narrative, then it's, you're less likely to also think of it in terms of, of serendipity or in terms of, you're, also, you're, you're more likely to squash the serendipity if you eliminate the observation part from your explanation. So I sent you this um, a story. So I think there's a story in uh, in geology or mineral exploration, anyways, that kind of embodies this this concept. I think like really, really well. 
um, and it's a discovery of a copper deposit in um, in Papua, West Papua, in Indonesia. And it's done by a geologist, a Dutch geologist named Jean-Jacques Dozy. And uh, so Dozy's main aim was to actually go climb a glacier in West Papua. And along the way, he happened to go, obviously, up the right valley and noticed a certain type of geological feature, a certain type of rock, a black rock that he found very interesting and uh, and wrote it down that, you know, it was an observation he made that this seems to be a very interesting rock and it has a lot of copper staining on it. Um, and that observation was forgotten for a long, long time until, you know, we're talking about in the 1920s that he did this, 20s, 30s. Um, and 25 years later, someone came across his journals, saw that observation, and then went on the trek to go and find it. And that was the actual discovery of the deposit. So, you know, we're going to use this story as a preamble to this episode because I think, yeah, it covers the whole concept that, yeah, it, it is serendipitous that he went up the right valley, first of all, but then the recognition really by him was the fact that this looked unusual and I should take some observations down and leave it for someone else coming after me. And so it's interesting that, you know, like in the narrative, sometimes Dozy's involvement gets forgotten because the person that comes second and finds it, you know, gets the credit for the fact that they discovered it. But but in reality, yeah, you know, that wouldn't have been possible if Dozy hadn't made the observation or written down exactly where it was, et cetera, et cetera. So the, there's two things um, on that story. Uh, the first is, as you point out, you can you can come across a discovery uh, like that in the in geology. Um, whereas, I mean, if I'm an experimental physicist, I'm, I don't just come across a quark, you know, while I'm <laughs> while I'm walking through my yard. So it's uh, there is a difference there. Uh, whereas, and the other thing that you point out is this, the, the writing down and the keeping it. And, uh, for me, this is, this is the key thing in the, in the whole Princes of Serendip and the Camel Driver story, right? I mean, they had to not only know how to interpret the observations they made, but also hold on to those observations in the first place and not just forget them in a heap of other observations that they must have made along the road as well so that they could call them back up. Um, and it's, you know, we don't, unless you have a, a perfect photographic memory, you're not going to remember every detail. You make selections at the time of what you're going to remember. And even more importantly, you make selections about what you write down, uh, what you might uh, publish, whether or not it's like a great discovery, but something that you think is important enough to write down and publish, um, or what you might tell colleagues. Um, and a good story that comes not from uh, science, but from industry is the, uh, the post-it note story. I don't know if you know this. No, no, no. Uh, so post-it notes are a classic serendipity story where um, one of the, one of the uh, technicians at uh, 3M at the time, and I'm, I'm sorry that I don't know his name, but it's easy enough to find, uh, that uh, he was trying to make a, a glue and then what he ended up with is a substance that didn't stick to anything. So like an anti-glue, and he's like, what am I going to do with this, right? So, but he felt like it was somehow useful. He didn't know how it was going to be useful. And that substance actually circulated in 3M, the company, for a long period of time. And uh, Raghu Garud, who's a theorist in innovation um, and management theory, he's, uh, he's 
given like the full story of it, but it was a long time and a period of different meetings and encounters and interactions where this person who had made this observation but had this substance that he didn't know what to do with kind of presented it to multiple people and, and kind of kept it around until finally somebody uh, needed to stick something to a board but didn't want it to get stuck and so used this non-glue to stick it to a board and they went that's what it's useful for right there you know and post-it notes right which are ubiquitous and and one of the greatest discoveries as far as I'm concerned of all time <laughs> I use them all the yeah. time you know and uh but at the point of discovery didn't know what it was useful for and it took the kind of organization like 3M was the kind of organization that would keep that idea going and in circulation mm -hmm. for a period of time right and there's other stories where they've had to go back they're like well, we need this kind of thing they go back through their records to try and find something that they found in the past that's similar and they've managed to find it like in a desk drawer or something a lot of these serendipity stories are, again, not serendipity. At the time, it's not seen as, as, a, as a valuable, they don't know what the value of the thing is that they've observed or have created. But later, when the use is presented to them, um, it becomes valuable. And it's this, uh, this role of memory and individuals remembering things and later calling them up. And, uh, but also institutions remembering things and getting them out there. And um, so uh, an author named Swanson pointed out the problem of um, undiscovered public knowledge, which really interests me as well, where there's like millions of publications. And unless the right person reads the right two publications and has the right experience and the right knowledge and the right kind of attention at the time, those two results will not be connected. And again, some people are trying to solve this with data. And other people just see it as a, an eternal kind of problem. But that's where a lot of the serendipity lies, right? It's how this information comes back into play and gets used again. So I think that's a very interesting problem to look at as well. So if you were looking for people to maximize serendipity, are there certain attributes that you could look for in people that are, uh, that are more attuned to them being more open to serendipity or more open to serendipitous outcomes? Well, because I think it has, it hinges on our expectations and how, how resistant we are to having those expectations changed. Um, I, I think like humility is, is a big factor. So you have to be open, but you also have to be humble about letting your own, you know, expectations and, and predictions go. Also, I think, uh, an awareness of complexity, right? That uh, that there, there's going to be complex aspects of whatever it is that you're doing that you may not be able to foreground, right? That you're going to encounter along the way. And, uh, and also, you know, humility in the sense that some of those you're going to follow up and they're not going to be valuable. So you might, you know, there's definitely, you know. You have to be okay with being wrong a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, you do, you do. Um, and yet be willing to, if not pursue it yourself, be willing to give it over to someone else. So all of this does, you know, again, come back to humility, to a certain aspect of seeing yourself as a, as a part of a larger network of knowledge production and letting go of some of the serendipitous discoveries and letting them happen without you because you won't be able to make all of them happen. But you might be able to tell that person for whom it could be 
an important discovery. Um, and if you're really lucky, you'll get credit for it in the footnotes, right? But <laughs> that doesn't always happen. Yeah, I think you, I mean, that's a good point. You have to be okay with other people doing something with your idea when you may not necessarily be in the right place to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I didn't get to go down every street in Rome, but I've told other people about cool streets that I saw that maybe, you know, if they get a chance, you should, you should go check that out because it looked really cool. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important thing that, that can be, it's lacking in our current scientific environment. You don't get funding for ideas you gave away. That's fine. Um, but I think it is essential overall for, for more serendipity to happen. And if, if we all live in that kind of environment, we can do that. And somebody's going to throw an idea your way as well. So you don't always have to seek them out yourself. So clearly the concept of discoveries in science is a paradigm that people have built up that they should happen a certain mm -hmm. way. And a lot of your research and other people's research is now challenging that paradigm about how discoveries actually mm -hmm. happen in science. Changing paradigms in science is not an easy thing. Do you find that there is that resistance in this discussion as well? Um, it's an interesting question because there's, um, there's an obvious reliance on the paradigm, the way people tell narratives and the way they talk about discoveries, especially in popular literature, and even in, um, in the way we talk about, you know, who discovered what, you know, the fact that we, that's, we ask the question, well, who discovered that? Or when was that discovered? We still have within our kind of collective conscience, this idea that there's gonna be a time and a place that we can narrow down when it comes to a discovery. But people have known for ages that this is not the case, right? The discoveries simply don't, happened that way. And if you kind of drilled somebody on that, I think everyone would answer, well, of course, lots of people were involved. And of course, this. and uh, when I was writing that paper, I kind of had to make the argument that the paradigm was still playing a role that we needed to, we needed to look more um, analytically at, like at the kind of implications of that paradigm. Um, and the fact that we still talk that way, because it's kind of a, well, doesn't everybody already know? Like there's lots of really great history of science out there and there's lots of really great social science, um, sociology of science out there that shows definitively that discoveries are complicated and messy and lots of people are involved and the way we look at them retrospectively is different than the way we see them as they're happening. And uh, I think scientists know this too. And I think, you know, even your average person has a sense that that's the case, right? But mm -hmm. yet, um, and especially in the serendipity literature, what you continue to get are these books, for example, that come out with all these anecdotal, you know, telling about this discovery, you know, and how unexpected it was. And it's these, these fun, you know, bathroom reader type books where it's a collection of short narratives about how these discoveries happen. And even within those narratives, often you see the complexity and the number of people that are involved, but the way that the narratives are put together and the way the stories are told in summary, it's like, this is so-and-so's discovery of this, and this is how it happened. And the cool thing, you know, it's uh, uh, when they do add the complexity and they do add the complications to the narrative, it's like they're revealing something that nobody knew before. So they're starting with the assumption that everybody thinks that this was a really simple story, but it's not. And that's what's cool about it. And so now there are, so you, and you get this in the blog posts as well, and in uh, kind of popular, uh, popular podcasts even, um, this, it continually comes up as a paradigm that we have to break through 
even though we're constantly breaking through this paradigm. <laughs> so it's a really weird, no, that's it's a weird kind of circle of, of narratives that's happening here. And, and I don't really, I don't know if I have like an, a stance on what that means. Like I'm, you know, a sociologist will have a better perspective on that than I do. But um, when I look at it, I see um, a certain kind of epistemology underlying our tendency to continue pushing that narrative. Mm -hmm. That epistemology is this idea that I mentioned in the paper um, and many other people that I source in that paper mentioned that there's a, a particular individual who has this access to this knowledge and that knowledge is um, thus given by the real world to specifically perceptive kind of individuals, right, who have this innate talent. And that's what I'm trying to get at in that paper is just that that epistemological trope, that founding idea that we can't seem to get away from in our society is where we need to go and start really breaking it apart. Um, because we all know that the stories are more complicated. We get told that all the time, you know, but it's still told as though it's something exciting and new to find out, look how complicated this story is. And well, of course it's complicated, you know? <laughs> So do you think the reason why uh, we built this paradigm largely based on narratives is because for a long, long time, we may not have known exactly how the process happened? Mm. Part of it is, is because of that. Um, I mean, you can go way back to Plato if you want to talk about the problem of discovery, right? He's got the dialogue, the Mino, which is brought up a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in that dialogue, Socrates is putting to the instructor of Mino the, the problem that, you know, how are you, uh, so how are you supposed to find out something new if you have to already know what you're looking for, right? Correct. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not doing a very good paraphrase of this, but it's, it's like, the problem. Like how do you know about something you don't know, essentially? So like, how do you start the process of knowing what you don't know? Exactly. Where do you even look? How do you even start trying to figure that out if you don't already know something about it? But if you already know something about it, then it's not, not new knowledge. So you get in this like, in this weird paradox, um, Mino's paradox, right? That uh, we're supposed to learn new things and yet we can't learn new things without already knowing how to find out about them and uh and so it's been a problem for a long time right? <laughs> it's not new um so i think there's always been kind of a mysteriousness about it right and in that dialogue you know socrates and and plato really kind of go back to the idea that we must have some kind of foreknowledge that we gain before we're even born in the realm of the forms right like <laughs> there's a whole ontology behind and a metaphysics behind explaining that um so there's your mystery right they create a mysterious other worldliness um in order to explain how we do that and uh these days it gets grouped under the paradigm of genius, right? You know, we can't explain how those people know the things they know, you know, and it's, it can't be expertise because in some respects, um, only those people could ever do that, right? Mm -hmm. You do get this sense that certain people have a, a knack or an ability to perceive things that will remain tacit, is not something that anybody's ever going to be able to explain. So. Um, you know, like really, truly great dancers, for example, not everybody can do that. It doesn't matter how much you practice. You can put in your 10,000 hours 
um, as they say, you know, if you want to, but there's still going to be That's people hard. that yep. rise to the top, right? And discoveries like that. It's this, it's this kind of ability to look at things and perceive value where others might not be able to. Um, so I think that's a that's an old old problem in human history, right? And uh, and um, so let me extend it a little bit yeah. further. Then, so is serendipity the mechanism for us to learn about the unknown? Then, some have said so that yes, that's the way that's the way it's done. Um, that that this is just a category for explaining how we do that, how we expand our horizons, um, and this is. Because it has to be, right? I mean, again, with, with Mino's paradox, you can't have expected things expand your horizons in novel ways. So there has to be something unexpected. Exactly. Um, so some have called that serendipity. Absolutely. Um, so you could say that. <laughs> because I guess, um, so I'm trying to step into your domain here, but philosophically, it, you, you have this problem here where, like you said, the only way you can learn about something you don't know is by accident really mm -hmm. uh like you know the starting point has to be an accident and the the difference between accident and serendipity is the recognition of the value of, of that of that accident mm. so so for a lot of people it will be an accident maybe for a few people it's a serendipitous discovery and is that then the mechanism of how we find out about unknown things sure <laughs> I mean, the, the word accident is tricky and lots of people trip over it, uh, pun intended, um, because it really implies something like a car accident, which is uh, something unfortunate, something that you, or something to which no one deserves the credit of enabling to happen. Like you, you don't want anyone to be at fault when you say it was an accident, right? And you don't want to give anyone the credit when you say it's an accident. And that's where serendipity kind of comes in as a category because we use serendipity when we want to say someone deserves credit for, for that, um, that thing happening, that it wasn't just merely lucky, that it wasn't accidental, that it was, you know, accidents and sagacity, that both those things were needed. That's right. So, this is why it's an interesting uh, category. I think some progress really does, you know, you could say happens by accident. <laughs> I think it's entirely possible that, that aspects of our progress happen, you know, without anybody's intentions being involved. Nobody's fault and nobody gets credit. But then you're faced with the what does the, what are they getting credit for problem? And that's, that's where I like to look. So let's expand on that. So like, I think you phrased that really well that you know, we have a, a possibly a negative connotation with the word accident and maybe a positive connotation with the word uh, serendipitous outcome. Mm -hmm. So because we apply this positive uh, application to, to the word or to the event, then we then also reward people for the fact that they had sagacity or, the, you know, they had awareness to, to recognize it. Mm -hmm. So the, your question is a really good one. What are we, what are we rewarding them in that sense? So in some ways, are we rewarding them for like some um, personality traits that they have? Like, you know, are they uh, more aware than other people? Are they curious? Uh, do they have a high level of curiosity in looking at this? Um, or do they have uh, prior knowledge that allows them to recognize that intersection event that is a, is a discovery or serendipitous outcome? 
And that's a huge question because uh, really in the, the history of serendipity literature, so people who've looked at this problem, I, I mean, the list of characteristics that serendipitous people have is is endless and conflicting. <laughs> so correct. Some people yeah, say you have to be a novice and come from outside of the field, and others say that you want to be prepared. Right? There's the preparedness um, of Louis Pasteur, right? Yep. The prepared mind. Um, other people say you should be a maverick, right? So you should be uh, willing to go outside the lines of your discipline and push people's buttons a little bit and persevere. Perseverance is another one. Yep. Curiosity comes up all the time. Uh, Salvador Luria had a nice way. He said it's controlled sloppiness, <laughs> which is great. That's probably pretty good, actually. Yeah. So, you know, you think of that person with the incredibly messy desk, and yet when you ask them for something, they know just where to find it, right? Yep. And, uh, and that kind of image comes up a lot. Um, one of the headlines that I quote in my paper uh, credits Fleming with being a slob. And that's why, you know, he, he found the Petri dish because he failed to clean up his lab bench. Um, so there's a, but I mean, really, we're not giving Fleming a Nobel Prize for being a slob. Let's be honest, right? We think, <laughs> we think there's something more to it than just being messy. Um, and when Luria says controlled sloppiness, like the controlled part is really important. And you might be a maverick, but if you're just out there, then nobody's going to listen to you either. So you really need to walk both sides of the fence yep. um, in order to, to pull off serendipity. You have to be curious and open-minded, but not just follow, you know, whatever lead presents itself and go willy-nilly, you know, in any direction. So it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting middle category with all of these personality characteristics involved and then some people more of them may present than in others right i guess like my personal opinion is that i don't think it's an end member discussion i think it's the people that have they probably have a workable level of different skills that allows them to to see this um in the example of fleming he had enough expertise in microbiology to recognize what he saw and then explore it a little bit further. So he had a certain level of prior knowledge, but he also had a certain level of curiosity. It wasn't that he was just curious and he looked at every single Petri dish that looked different. No, he had some prior right. knowledge that kind of guided him through a, a certain path. Yeah. Um, so you brought up the story of Dozy and the, uh, I can't remember the name of the mine now in Indonesia. Grasberg. Thank you. Um, and I was thinking about that because uh, we spoke about it a little bit in terms of its relation to memory, where Dozy made the observation and it was an unexpected and all things considered accidental observation, but yet he knew enough to write it down and then also to give it to the right people. Yep. So that later on, that knowledge could be useful to someone who got a hold of it, right? If he had just, you know, painted it on his bedroom wall, no one would have seen it who needed to see it. But instead, um, and this is something I like to highlight, he had a certain kind of um, strategic knowledge mm -hmm. about how to communicate his knowledge in the best way possible to get it picked up and taken up. Um, and also he had a certain amount of agency in his own community. So he wasn't just a 
he wasn't just a geologist and he wasn't a geologist who went off all over the place and you know did crazy things that no one listened to he was someone that people took his information as proper information and then put it to use because they trusted it as a source i mean how many people wouldn't just follow anybody's treasure map, right? You follow the treasure map of someone who you think actually buried treasure there and you have reasons to believe this is a real treasure map and not just something a kid drew. And so all of that reasoning to believe in that as a source of valid information and as good evidence for a possible discovery, that has a lot to do with it too. And that's external to, uh, it's, well, it's not entirely external because how you develop that agency is by being an expert and by being involved in those communities and by you know earning the trust of the people to whom you present this evidence right so all of that kind of social skills and strategic skills come into play just as much as any kind of intellectual or innate creativity um, based skills come into play so I think that's an interesting point. So you use the word agency and my preference is to use something like capital. Right. You have intellectual capital that you can apply. Uh, you have personality traits, capital, like mm -hmm. curious, etc. Um, so last time we were talking about the role of individual versus communities. Mm -hmm. So do you think that um, the reason why we stand to gain something by creating communities is that we can then apply... Uh, a wider base of capital to individuals that then come across these things. So if you don't have the social capital where, or say you don't have the, the prior knowledge or the intellectual capital, then by leveraging others along the way, you then stand to gain something. So do you think that that's the role that these communities will play in this scenario? I do. Um, and in, in my dissertation, I... I tried to narrow it down to three kind of characteristics that a community has to have in order to generate more serendipity, you know, among its members mm -hmm. to be more serendipitous. The kind of obvious one is openness to serendipity itself, right? You have to first be open to the possibility that discoveries are going to happen unexpectedly, just in general. Um, but the next one is uh, creating networks so that you can, you have the, the interaction between your members as a community. So that's, and uh, Johnson talks about this in the book that you mentioned, um, where he's, you know, communication is key, right? You need to bring people together and they need to communicate their ideas for these un unexpected connections to be made. But further than that, these communities and networks also have to support the agency of the people within them. So they have to give them the means to be better and more involved and more active agents, right? So and this is this is why I, I tend to think of it as agency, right? I mean, capital is almost like something you would distribute to people, whereas agency is something support and you can build and you can give other people the means to express their own agency in better ways. Mm -hmm. um, and the third kind That's of- That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, the third kind of group is sharing knowledge and enabling access. And so sharing knowledge is the simple, you know, again, creating the means out there for these connections to be made, you know, um, publishing results, um, getting your own knowledge out there even when you're not going to use it rather than being secretive. But enabling access is, is the kind of other aspect of that connected to agency, right? Where um, you're not going to be able to predetermine uh, what knowledge is going to be valuable to who. So what's important is that people are able to access um, different sources of knowledge 
when they need to or when they can. Yeah, okay. And access is something that's a little more difficult than just putting knowledge out there, right? I mean, enabling access also means giving people the tools and giving people the time and giving people the skills that allow them to really access that knowledge that's out there. So again, this goes back to supporting the agency and the development of their epistemic skills. We talked about the water cooler image, right? And, and I said, it's more than just a water cooler yep. down the hall. It's also, you know, getting people to speak up and getting people to, rather than just throwing a bunch of ideas into a hat, it's discussion and it's, you know, uh, it's really relating ideas to one another. And one thing that I want to emphasize in my research is the importance of, um, of building relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, so Johnson's book, I haven't read his book, so I, I, won't, I won't critique it. But when he talks about the exchange of ideas, um, and a lot of people focus on the exchange of ideas, that we want to make these connections between ideas, um, I think what people are missing is the importance of relationships. Um, as well, that uh, serendipity happens in part because we put ourselves in different positions as people to one another. We see different mm -hmm. people as new sources of knowledge and we establish relationships that push us in unexpected directions that may not be just an intellectual thing. It might not just be a new idea. It might be a new way of looking at things. Right. And how do you it's hard to capture that with just this kind of connections between ideas image of serendipity. I think your point is a very valid one. At the end of the day, the idea travels with people. Mm -hmm. So Johnson's idea of there's all these ideas that are just colliding. Well, not really. It's through the interaction of people and relationships. And yeah. so and I think that was a point that I don't think was made very strongly. But and I think your point there is a very valid one. And even even if we go to the level of data, a lot of the really good work that's being done on data and databases and data sharing um, in epistemology right now, and Sabina Leonelli has done some of the best of this work, um, talks about the importance of understanding the relationship between the data and it, the medium in which the data is created, stored, and then used, mm -hmm. right? And this is, this is a relationship between, um, between those numbers and the context in which they exist. And you can't just see data as isolated as a, as a thing that you can just pick up. Like, it's not like a stone where, you know, if I set it down, someone else can pick it up and use it in whatever way, you know, it's, uh, it's much more complicated than that. And uh, so even when it's not in a person, these ideas are still kind of embedded in a context that kind of needs to be related to in order to understand it. Um, if I can, talk for a minute because I was looking up your your example of the uh the Olympic um dam project oh yep yeah yep. so I know nothing about geophysical surveys but I learned a bit and uh, <laughs> but one excellent good what <laughs> interesting thing about your life will now be completely different Samantha, <laughs> now that you know about geophysics yeah your life like this will this will be the the, what is it the saying that this is the first day of the rest of your life now that you know geophysics. you may have to explain to me later why it's important because i still don't quite get that but uh but it's cool nonetheless. neither do we so we're on the same page okay. so it's good but i was reading about the how they went from having the geophysical data um in that area and how it was fortunate uh, that that particular state actually put markers at a narrower range than other states had done so that you had better data for that area. 
uh, which is just one added little thing of, you know, serendipitous type event. And, yep. um, and then it talked about how someone had plotted out, replotted that data in a way that kind of emphasized the anomalies that they then picked up on in order to say we should dig here. Um, but that kind of reconfiguring of the data, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's an important step, right? It's, it's, and it's a way of positioning it in, in a way that makes it look valuable to others. And so that kind of skill is, is as important in some cases as just making the observation, right? It's uh, perceiving something and then being able to communicate why it's valuable and what's important about it. These are also important skills. I completely agree. I think the, the fact that we, uh, I think I find like sometimes we value the the wrong part of the the equation that people go, well, if you just grab all this data, then all these insights will kind of pop out. And it's like, well, not necessarily, unless we have some sort of a context behind that data, or we have the right people kind of looking at the data, mm -hmm. the knowledge generation part doesn't automatically happen as soon as you collect data. Uh, and relevant knowledge gained out of it is probably actually another step. And your point about regridding of the data to make it, to visually show something else is a really important part of that. There was knowledge, but then there was actual knowledge that could be applied in different ways and then grow from that point on. So in one way you could see it as, as something like a completely unexpected discovery given that the data was created for another purpose and then someone else was able to see this in that data. But those minor steps, when you break them down, right, it seems a little bit more like a process of interpretation and inference and, uh, and a little less mysterious, right? It's, it's not a flash of insight that kind of occurred to someone. It was, uh, okay, oh, if I, these numbers seem to have a pattern to them. If I do this, then I emphasize that pattern in a way that, oh, shows us there might be something there, right? And all of that is like just kind of good scientific work. So in a lot of cases, it's less a flash of insight and it's more just uh, the process of science itself and how people are taught to look at things and try to see patterns in them. Do you think there's a role for people that have perhaps a, uh, that they've worked out a process? So once someone kind of uh, maybe gets good at that process of uh, creating social interactions, then let's call it trial and error, where they trial something, they have some problems, they then iterate, get more input. Do you think that's an ability that can be developed over time in certain individuals? Yes. <laughs> um, I do think that people can develop within themselves skills to be more open to picking up on potentially valuable things. Um, I think a lot of us do this, we just don't see it as cultivating serendipitousness, right? <laughs> to invent a word. Correct. No, no, that's why. If you think about the average person who, you know, learns how to write an exam, or learns how to swing a golf club, or learns how to, you know, do any of these basic skills, these kinds of things that you, you learn over time that you have to adjust to context. And so you have to learn how to pick up the cues, not only about the world and about what it is that you're trying to do, but about yourself, right? So mm -hmm. a golf player, for example, has to know more than just how to perfect a swing and how to adjust for the wind, but also how to adjust for how they're feeling and how their body might be 
um, interacting with that swing that day, right? I mean, we're not all the same person every day, all the time. So great sports people and great dancers, I think, adjust a lot to their own body and their own limitations and their own capacities, as well as to what the specific skill that they're trying to learn. And I think that people, you know, I feel that that's what I, you know, people say you know, that being good at university and getting a PhD is some kind of uh, different thing, but I don't think it's any different than learning any of those skills, right? I just happen to have a specific set of capacities and skills that I learned to adjust to the environment of university type um, programming, you may say. <laughs> um, and I learned how to write tests and I learned how to write papers and that takes a certain amount of adjustment to my own capacities that day and, and that week and that year, as well as learning the skills of writing, etc. So I think, I think being open to serendipity is, is one of these skills, right? You learn how to pick up on cues for things that might be valuable to you, not necessarily to anybody, but to you, um, over time by opening yourself up in specific ways at specific times and places. So, um, who is it? I think it's uh, one of the Macri and Blanford papers where they speak to a number of different people, including artists. And uh, one of the artists talks about going down into a subway when in need of a particular kind of idea for for uh, I think a, a play that they were trying to write or a production that they were trying to think think through. And they were inspired by going down into the subway and seeing a certain you know, configuration of, of things. And that, that seems serendipitous from one perspective because it's like by chance they went into the subway stop, you know, they didn't need to take this subway necessarily, but this happened and then they, they hit on that great idea. But in another sense, that was them having the skill of opening themselves up in the right ways to things in their environment that might inspire them in the right way. These are, these are things that people learn to do better over time. The part that I find interesting about the research that you and your colleagues are doing is that I think it's uh, testing the bounds of what, what is expertise, how can it grow, how can knowledge come out of it, and how do you add knowledge to that expertise over time? Again, how do you do it as an individual? How do you do it as a community? How do you do it as a science? And for me, it's a part of going into serendipity is about understanding how and when we recognize expertise as such. And so one, another thing that came up when I was reading about Dozy and his find is um, what if the story were slightly different? What if instead of him coming across that piece of rock while on the mountainside, one of the locals had told him about it on his way through the jungle. Yep. We would still think about it as serendipity and as a serendipitous discovery by him because we would think if he hadn't gone on that expedition, he would never have met that person who had that knowledge. But he would still be the wise, perceptive geologist in the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is what's interesting. So it doesn't, in, in one way, you know, like the difference between some people as sources of knowledge and the actual observation itself can be very, very much diminished in stories of serendipity because of the way we tell them. And, uh, and so I like to look at those stories closely and see what they say about how we recognize knowledge and how we recognize the value of, of certain knowledge when we find it. I think that's a great point. The paper that you sent me, the part that I really liked about it is that even in 
uh, while looking at it, at things retrospectively, it's not a clear path. You could actually draw many different paths to stories. And we just choose to draw one because for whatever reason, it works better as a narrative. We want to highlight certain things. We want to diminish others. So yeah, and I, and I guess like, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that story evolves with time as well. Maybe the, the initial story of Dozy was that he ran into a lot of locals that told him stuff, but after, if he says it enough times, then is it attributed to him and other people's roles is diminished and all of these type of different things. So I think that's a really, really fascinating part of this. Yeah, I think so too. And I think we, like, we find this with mineral discovery stories as well, that if you go and talk to the people at the time, they have a completely different opinion to what they have now. And obviously the story grows with time. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, bringing it back to this, you know, why does this paradigm still exist? In, in a lot of ways, it still exists because it makes a great story. That's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for stories, we wouldn't have this podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> True. By the 1980s, the Erzberg open pit mine was no longer profitable and was shut down. But by then, Frank and Eleanor Nelson and other geologists had discovered huge underground copper deposits nearby. It was a rich find, but it wasn't the mother load Freeport had been searching for. But in 1984, a new chief executive took over at Freeport. James Robert Moffat was a field geologist who'd spent years exploring for oil and minerals. He wasn't ready to give up on Arian Jaya. He believed in the Mother Lode. I looked at New Guinea and saw Papua New Guinea with hundreds of mines that had been explored over the last 150 years, and Arian Jaya with basically the small Erzberg mine. And it's what we call state line geology. It happens all the time. Just because this terrain was so horrible, uh, in terms of, of trying to explore it. And people quit at the Papua New Guinea border and they begin to, 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 to tell themselves that this state line really was some sort of a geologic boundary. Well, that's ridiculous. Geology doesn't know political boundaries and it never has and it never will. Moffat was convinced there was more gold in Irian Jaya's primeval hills. He told his geologists to find it. As it happened, a Freeport geologist in Arian Jaya had been thinking about gold and staring at a mountain called Grossberg, less than two miles from the Erzberg mine. Every morning I'd look up and I'd see the outcrop, I'd see that mountain sitting up there and I'd think to myself, gee, there really should be something up there. It literally drove me nuts to stand down at the bottom of that mountain and look up at it and know that there was a rock up there that I hadn't been on. And uh, that was an itch that I just had to scratch. And after about two years, we finally got a chance to do it. The rocks Dave Potter collected on Grossberg assayed at one to two grams of gold per ton. It was enough to justify further investigation. Potter set up diamond drills and took core samples. The first one came back, uh, which was an angle hole that went directly under the outcrop. And not only did it have gold in it, it also had copper values. And for the first time, I started thinking to myself, there's something more here than just a gold deposit. 
the one that really drove it home was a third, the last hole that we drilled, it went over uh, about 1,500 feet deep. And out of that 1,500 feet, all of it but about 90 to 100 feet came back with copper values that were ore grade. In other words, they were on the order of 1 to 2 percent copper, on the order of 1 to as high as 5 grams per ton gold. That hole was when I suddenly felt, my God, this is big. Big was an understatement. Grossberg made mining history. Dave Potter's hunch led Freeport to a billion tons of ore, the biggest gold deposit and the third biggest copper deposit ever found. Give Mr. Moffat the credit for maintaining uh, the property when he could have taken probably $75 million for it in, in the early 80s and walked away clean. You know, now Grassberg itself in the ground is worth uh, over $40 billion. $75 million, $40 billion, good choice. That marks the end of part one of our interview with Samantha. Check out part two to listen to the rest of our discussion on serendipity in science. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve in the Mart. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. A special thanks also goes out to the Q Media Group for giving us the permission to use the audio from the documentary Superstructures of the World, The Grassberg and Erzberg Mines. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.